Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again with Adam Chemaluski as we kick off Movie May. Chema, how you doing today, my man? Doing really good, dude. Survive Coachella. Just making it through the week. I got to Pearl Jam tomorrow, so... I am like, this is like I was telling you off air. It has been a busy ass fucking week, but I'm almost to the end of it, man. And I'm going to close this out with authority. I, I feel you. And I'm, I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm praying Thank for you. you. I, I understand we're, bo- we're both having kind of shitty. Mine's been about a shitty like 10 days, uh, 12 days or so. Mm-hmm. But yeah, both having kind of shitty work weeks. Because uh, as it turns out, podcasts don't make you any money. We can't, uh, we can't uh, quit, quit our jobs and do this full time. Even if this was super popular, it still wouldn't make us any money. Um, right. Oh, exactly. So there is that. Anyway, we are like I said before. We are we are kicking off movie May. Um, we are we are officially done with Chama's selections um, for the for the year, and now we're going to jump into. Um, uh, we're not actually technically speaking, we're not to my selections yet. We always have movie May. That's that's just like in that is in ink, if you will, for our for our schedule every year. Um, uh, however, I did get to, I did get to make the choice this year for our subject matter, uh, last, as I did last year, but we just, I just figured it would kind of like, it would just make the most sense to go ahead and choose it this year. Um, Mm -hmm. so last year we did a short film festival and that was awesome. I actually, that went even better than I thought. Um, and we both brought a lot of interesting stuff to the table. Like I, I would, I know you said it too. Like I would do another short film episode period at some point in time. Oh, easily dude, without a doubt. And like, because of our short film festival, I am very excited for May twentieth when uh, Love, Death, and Robots season three drops That's on right. Netflix. It'll be my, um, I think, fourth excuse to watch Netflix in the last couple months. So I'm pretty <laughs> excited about that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man, I especially after what they did last year, like I'm really excited to see what they got in line for this season. Same, same here, same here. Excited for that. Uh, so we were kicking, you know, I was kicking around some ideas for what we could do this year, and uh, I mentioned to Chema potentially doing like the you know, the best movie of like, you know, the worst director or like a terrible actor, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of examine the, um, you know, like what, 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 what separates their best effort, be it a, be it a, you know, director, an actor's performance, could even be a writer, um, you know, like what separates their best performance from everything else that they do. Um, and then similarly, maybe do like a, do like one episode like that, then switch it and do an episode of like these luminaries. And then like, what is their worst movie? What is their worst performance? Whatever. Um, mm-hmm. here's why I, here's why I steered away from that. I was kind of worried that we would, on the one end of it, we would be like, we would like be reviewing like a Spielberg or a Tarantino movie. And while I have zero problem doing that, you know, picking the worst Spielberg, picking the worst Tarantino movie, it's still, those are still miles and miles and miles better than even some mediocre movies. Yeah. Like, in terms of just production, um, you know, the, the way it's shot, the acting performances, like the worst Spielberg movie is still better than what most directors have ever fucking made in their entire lives. Yeah, no, you make a really good point with that. And like bring even like with the Tarantino in particular, I'm like, OK, so like even like what I would consider to be the, the you know, the bottom tier of his film stuff, like. It's still like a glorious and like Kill Bill 2 and everything. So, (laughs) I mean, he's still got some really good shit there. And I don't really feel like I don't really feel that that fits to like what we're going for with exactly. So, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. So like Spielberg's like, you know, and, and then it's weird because like, um, 
I, I you know, like, just like, are we going to watch like Josh Trank stuff? You know, there's, there's a lot of like, um, I guess there's like a lot of room for some of the, like the bad stuff, but like you make a really good point about the, the big time directors and their, their bad like movies and everything, you know? And and then, and then conversely, I also didn't want to make, I, I really thought about it and I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to watch again, excuse me. I don't want to watch again an Uva Bowl movie, an Uva Bowl movie at all. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar. They, they are, They're not well. Shouldn't say that they're not intentionally bad because his later, his more recent output, um, like th- through like the end of the two thousands and the twenty tens, they were intentionally bad movies. But mm-hmm. like <clears throat> he, he makes movies that it's just like every decision is the wrong decision, right. and yeah. he doesn't shy away from. He's like I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. They're 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 bad in a way that's not even enjoyable for the most part. Yeah, I got you. No, I understand what you're saying, and like that doesn't sound enjoyable at all. It's it's not like it's mm-hmm. it, like when I was thinking about it, I'm like, you know, we could you could do like Paul W S Anderson, you know, mm-hmm. we could do Event Horizon, because that is far and away his best movie, and that movie fucking fucks. That movie oh, yeah, fucks. Still, still, um, I watched it two years ago. It was yeah, awesome. It's a great. It's a that's a great movie, but like, you know, it, it's. Really, when you talk about like these kind of directors that like be it Paul W S Anderson, Uva Bowl, um, you know Josh Trank was a good one. Um, there's another one that's another someone else is gonna pop the fucking um, the spoof movie guys. Uh, so oh. uh, Seltzer and I, yeah, I can't think of what it is. They, they ended up going to write Chernobyl. So <laughs> right, right, but um, you know, like I, I, I don't know. I just didn't want to like. I didn't want to like wallow in that kind of stuff for too long either it's just it's like at the very least like i want to have some fun even if it's terrible i want to have some fun watching it and a lot of that experience just i just know wouldn't be fun no dude i totally understand what you're saying here and like you know we'd have to do like multiple of those movies too you know like it's like i almost couldn't just watch one trank movie i'd probably have to be exposed to like three of them and stuff for Mm -hmm. the sake of the conversation and like you're right. There, there's something about that where it's almost going to feel like a chore. And I even think that somewhere in there, you're not going to get, we're not going to get the best like material out of ourselves because it's going to be kind of like draining. And then when the discussion comes around, it's just going to kind of turn into like a real big, like um, shit on session mm-hmm. with like, Oh, well at least they got the movie made. I'm happy for them. You know, at the yeah. end of it. So. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Freiburg and Seltzer. Oh, Freiburg and Freiburg and gotcha, Seltzer. Gotcha. Um, yeah, but anyway, yeah. So, so I, I stayed away from all that, and I settled on doing a deep dive into for this episode, doing a deep dive into B movies, um, and sort of how that this, this is considered this like a quick, a, an abbreviated or an abridged history of the B movie, and what what it's sort of like what the term denoted originally when they first began using it, and how we think of B movies now. And then we're mm-hmm. going to do, we're going to have a homework assignment, which I'll, I'll explain a little bit more at the end, where we obviously are going to watch some B-movies. Um, and, and, you know, and I guess generally review them how we, <clears throat> excuse me, how we would normally review any movie for Movie May. So we are going to, mm-hmm. we're going to make a, a deep dive into the B-movie. Um, and I'm, I'm t- I, I actually, I was kind of unsure about this. And when I started writing, writing out the outline, I became more and more sure that this was the, this is going to be a pretty fun uh, project for this month. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. I'm ready to do it. All right. However, before we get into the, the history lesson, um, you know, B-movies are notoriously 
throughout time, the one thing that they kind of get, uh, we'll get into this about the definition of a B-movie, but one thing that has stayed true to B-movies throughout time is they're very cheap to make. Um, so Chema, if you were producing a film and you had $1,000 to hand out, um, you know, to make a full-length feature, so lo- it's got to be longer than 40 minutes, as we learned from our short film festival, that's minimal minimal length for a feature is 40 minutes that's which seems mm-hmm. weird but um <laughs> you got a thousand dollars 40 minutes of film at least who are you calling on to direct this movie i am calling upon one of my all-time favorite directors in kevin smith and this is largely attributed to the fact that he shot clerks which is a generational staple of people in our age bracket mm-hmm. for a mere twenty seven thousand five hundred seventy five dollars at a convenience store in lenardo new jersey that i've actually been to the movie makes it look a lot bigger than it actually I'm sure is it does, yeah <laughs> yes it does oh my god is that place small and they don't sell alcohol too which really fucking sucks because mm. just the laws out there it's the laws right but uh um, but yes. And the other thing, too, is that if this movie I had one thousand dollars to make it, it's more than likely going to be very dialogue heavy. And Kevin Smith has just proven time and time and again that he can somehow jimble jamble 10 to 15 conversations about Star Wars, sex, weed and maybe some other pop cultural comparison and string them together into um, into a coherent movie and everything. So that is by far and away um, my selection. I love this selection. And you know what? If I, I feel like if Kevin, Kevin Smith seems like the kind of guy and I know he doesn't do a ton. He still directs, obviously, but he's not nearly as. Um, he's not nearly as into, he's got his podcasts and TV shows and all kinds of other shit. Um, yeah. uh, he's, you know, he's, he's like a one man entertainment industry to himself. Um, I think if Kevin Smith felt strongly enough about whatever it was that you, you wanted to get produced, that he would do it for a thousand dollars. Oh yeah. That, like, that, he'd be like, all right, fine. That's what we're going to do. Let's do it. Let's figure it out. Yeah, there's something about him, um, just personality-wise, that I that I feel is that this dude just like loves this industry and everything, and loves everything about entertainment. I mean, he's like in terms of the podcast stuff. I mean, there's this point in time where it seemed like he was on like 20 different podcasts, you know, repeatedly Mm -hmm. on 20 different podcasts and stuff. And like he's still making movies. He's still doing um, TV stuff. You know, it's just, I guess, the characters of like Jay and Silent Bob and some of the people in like the Kevin Smith universe Mm -hmm. are just you know no longer his his focal point and everything like that so i like just even thinking about when i was writing down this answer like i've always been a fan of his movies and i I, one of my own like stupid little hot takes is that like he was a part of that like independent film movement in like the early 90s that not only like opened up the door to independent film as far as like the modern audiences go mm-hmm. and everything. But he's also like one of these um, writer directors, like the Tarantinos of the world that are kind of responsible for shaping our pop culture, like through their movies and dialogue. And I still believe that um, a lot of, a lot of different like vocal cadences responses, maybe quips that we make at one another and stuff are somehow derived from the dialogue of Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith. Like they're just, their influence upon our culture is just not one that you could like, is so in your face, like a Nike symbol, but like, it is definitely something that I feel is felt. Yes. I would 100, 100% agree with you there. Um, I, and I think, I think one of the, one of the big keys with, at least with Kevin Smith, 
and actually, I think you could extend this to Quentin Tarantino here as well. But certain for, certainly for Kevin Smith, one of the big keys for why he's so impactful for like our generation, um, and you know what we, you know how 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 he shaped pop culture and how he shaped us through pop culture is that it's a it's blue collar indie, blue collar indie film, blue collar indie movie. like those really weren't a thing prior to the nineties. Right, if you were doing indie art house stuff. It was the most pretentious fucking bullshit, um, you know. Or, or you had to do stuff like horror movies. Like mm-hmm. those were the two routes for like a really micro budget indie movie. You didn't have many many other options, so it had to be someone, you know, some like some art house film with like a naked woman looking at an apple for forty minutes and like crying, yeah. and then like, that was it. Or, or it was, or, you know, you know, John Carpenter went ahead and made Halloween. Like that, those were like the sort of the two avenues. And now we just have like sort of essentially like a, an almost Seinfeld-esque movie. It's yeah. just about two dudes hanging out, you know, you know, clerks, the titular clerks hanging out at their job, just doing nothing. Yeah, exactly. It's this perfect like slice of life to these things that I feel like, like I know that like our parents and stuff did like similar shit you know what i'm saying but like as far as our generation goes i mean it's almost like they've captured walking around macedonia commons as kids but they said it in a convenience store mm-hmm. you know that that's exactly like what he did and um i still see a lot of his stuff today maybe not so much on the tv front but like if he's doing film stuff like i mean i went to the theater to see tusk when it came out and mm-hmm. like i mean i'm going to continue to see um the movies that he makes and like it's just somebody that like, you know, I look online, he's lost a lot of weight. He's in such good health now. It's almost like having this kind of not blood related, but sort of like through the zeitgeist kind of relative that we've all kind of had in our lives over the years. And it's good to see that he's doing really good. You know, it just makes me happy. He was uh, just on blank check. And I would recommend his episode. Yes. Really good. Yes, he was. Yes, yeah. you bet. He was, definitely. What movie did they do again? It was um, oh, A Simple Plan with uh, Bill yep. Paxton and Billy Bob and everything. Yep. That's right. It's actually one that I definitely, post, post-listening to that episode, I'm like, fuck, I got to revisit that. Like, <laughs> really got to revisit that. Might even come up here. Who knows? Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, anyway, that was a, that was a long-ass lightning round question for the both of us, but whatever, no big deal. But I, I like the choice. Definitely love the choice. Kevin Smith is a great one. Um, I'm going with someone who made one of the most thought-provoking films in the last 20 years and did it on a $7,000 budget. Uh, I'm going with Shane Carruth, director of mm-hmm. Primer and Upstream Color. And oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, here's why. Besides the fact that, again, Primer was made on a $7,000 budget. Um, and it's one, of those, it's one of those weird things that, like, you, you want to talk about maximizing $7,000? Like mm-hmm. this movie feels not that it feels like a big budget sci-fi movie, but again we we're talking about a movie that involves time travel, and right. some a decent amount of enough special effects work and prop work and stuff that you're kind of like where in the hell, how in the hell did they stretch this seven thousand dollars? And it was shot on film too, which oh, immediately wow. cranks the cost of your of your production up. So I'm assuming that's where most of the seven thousand dollars went anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so there's that sort of like bootstrappiness about it, but the the fact that Shane Carruth and I don't I don't know if you I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it it the fact that Shane Carruth doesn't dummy down any part of this very complicated time travel story and lets you sort of 
you know, it's one of those things that like once you get through the movie, it begs for a repeat viewing to go like, mm-hmm. hold on a second. I'm what? How did I miss this? And then you go back and you rewind and you go through and you go, okay, so that's the part where we're actually looking at, we're not looking at, um, I can't remember their character's names, let's just call them Shane. That's not Shane Prime, that's or that's Shane That's Shane Prime, not Shane 2. And then like yeah. you, you realize, like, as you then then as you watch it again, you're like, holy shit. Like, he has been weaving these different versions of his character and different versions of his counterpart's character are woven in throughout the entire story. And you have to sit down and watch it multiple times to mm-hmm. actually, like, really, like, absorb that. And that is pretty... That is pretty amazing that someone who, again, with a, with a $7,000 budget and no professional actors made a movie that is, to this day, still still a um, sort of a film nerds or a film academics sort of, like, puzzle box to look at. How they did this and what it means. Oh, yeah, dude. Like, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right now. $7,000 budget turned around and made 841926 And, like, that itself right there is... A, really fucking impressive in terms of the numbers but the way that this movie um for being a movie that was shot on seven thousand dollars has sustained some sort of relevance since 2004 is like absolutely incredible and when we did the time travel episode on the podcast i didn't watch this whole movie but i remember watching clips and kind of looking up that what i'm seeing on wikipedia is this kind of time travel and primer flow chart that they have Mm -hmm. and like this is just like uh, this is like a highly intellectual project shot on a a shoestring collecting bottles and cans type budget and everything. Mm-hmm. It's truly amazing. And like, dude, this guy, like, um, when you look at like the credits and everything, directed by, written by, produced by Shane Carruth, Shane Carruth, Shane Carruth. There's only one other guy named David Solomon who I guess is either Aaron or Abe in the story. Yeah. And like, that's it as far as the credits go. So like, this dude. It makes me very happy to see people going like full blown for alarm into this whole process to the point where he's even like done the music and everything. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it makes it makes me long for an opportunity maybe one day further on down the road that I have to do something like that. For sure. And that's that's what he does now. Like he he um, he acts a little bit and he like composes music for TV shows. Um, he hasn't directed anything in nine years. Yeah, god damn, dude. Like, I'm telling you, the composer lifestyle, if I was more musically inclined, like, I could pick up a guitar and I could play you Wonderwall and stuff like that. But if I was more musically inclined to, like, the, the Hans Zimmers, the John Bryans, or the, the Danny Elfmans of the world, two mm-hmm. of which I've seen live in concert, and, like, these guys, like, they just like look at a musical instrument and like, I'm telling you, I think music is even coming through the speakers before they pick it up and play. Yeah. It. So like they just know fucking instruments and stuff. And that, that is like a job that I would love. I would love to know more about that. I'd love to be doing that kind of stuff. It, it's very clear that people who are composers almost are, almost are seeing the music as whatever, whatever they're composing for is happening. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they have to be seeing it as they're watching it, um, yeah. th- like and that and that's sort of as someone who's not particularly I'm not musically inclined you know at all anyway. Um, but like that's just like another level probably that even people who are musically inclined are like sort of like that's the next level when you just can mm-hmm. see something and go oh okay I can picture exactly what's going to happen right here in terms of the yeah. sound I know exactly where I'm going with this that's bizarre. 
It's, it is. It's a bizarre and it's like intelligence on a whole other fucking level and stuff. It, it makes me wonder, like, even if I was when I was younger, if I would have studied music like so hardcore and even today, if I was able to like pick up a guitar and play like a, a guitar solo from a song, if I would be able to still be able to do what those people do. And I, I personally don't think so. <laughs> no, it's like the it's like it's like comparing, you know, like the hardest working baseball player on a team is teammates with Ken Griffey Jr., and like that guy might even be a really good player, but like he has to fucking he has to do all the extra work and Ken rolls out of bed and hits fifty home runs a season. Yeah, I know, man. Oh my god. Like those they're just sometimes where like I wish I was able to do one thing like that. You know what I'm saying? Just give <laughs> right. me the one roll out of bed thing and kick ass at it. Right, right. All right, so there you go. Shane Carruth and Kevin Smith. Um they need to col- they need to collab on something, but um good luck getting Shane. You know what? I think I think the thing with Shane Carruth is I don't think he really gives a shit about about like having to but having to like consistently work in the Hollywood system. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that he's much more much more I have a feeling he's enjoying his life post primer that he just like, "Oh, I'm just going to pop into this TV show. I'm yeah. just going to compose this. I'm, I'm just going to do uh, I'm going to direct an episode of this. That's it." Yeah, ultimate freedom, dude. That's that is the delight that we all should uh, thrive to uh, thrive to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's get into the B movie though. Let's really let's get let's get into the nitty gritty when we talk about B movies. And sort of before we kind of get into, we're gonna we're gonna break this down sort of into eras that follow like the you know the classic the classic movie eras that we're sort of familiar with. We're gonna break it down like that, and don't worry, we're not gonna get too logged into the minutia of it. But I do want to start off with sort of like. What you what you think about you know how you think about B movies before we get into the definitions of it, and then see if like it see if um maybe some of your ideas have changed after going through this um this outline and everything. So, using some specific characteristics, how would you define a B movie for someone that is totally uninformed, not familiar with what we're talking about right now? Man, this is might be a long question here to break down, dude. But it's a big thinking, one. But we'll, we'll go yeah, through it. And like, what's weird is like, I was when I was writing down this answer, I was like, man, like how, this. Just even trying to explain it, I had to revise this a couple of times because I've never actually vocalized this kind of stuff before. So, um, to me. I view it as it's a feature that is reduced both in terms of production, like the physical process of making the product mm-hmm. and the presentation, the final product itself. The B movie in terms of it's so like that is kind of like the general definition. Yeah. And then like, if I'm going to break it down into some specific elements here, I feel that um, it's appearance has a tendency of very being very unfinished when compared to like a studio mm-hmm. presentation and everything. It's kind of the only way I can really explain it is just through kind of comparisons. But um, the appearance itself, like when you see a studio production, like everything just like, it looks amazing. When you maybe watch a B movie production, they don't have like as sophisticated as of cameras and everything. Right. So the, the cameras, like the minute that you like look at it, it becomes, it becomes identifiable. Like, you know, it just because it looks less, it looks like less produced. Mm-hmm. It looks more unfinished than a, um, than a Hollywood movie does. 
And like, it doesn't necessarily have to be like, even like in modern times, it doesn't have to be like looking at like a handheld camera and stuff. Like there's all these like maybe color gradings that somehow maybe make it look like a B movie. I remember watching this movie called clown that had this real like grayscale as color grading that um, yeah. I noticed in like certain indie films and stuff. They maybe try to make it look grayer and establish the tones through color and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one element of that. When it comes to, the writing itself, this is the one that I feel is the one that is not so in your face. Like, um, obviously, like most good scripts, hopefully, are being made by the studio system. And there's also some that are not so good scripts that are being made by the studio system. Yeah. So I so I think when um, people think B-movies, there's a certain connotation that, like, maybe, like, the script is bad. But I don't feel that that is, like, a guarantee every single time. So, like, the writing still may be okay, but there's a good chance that it's not because it's because um, you're more than likely watching a B, you're watching a B movie about something extremely unusual. But um, I do. But I feel that like writing is one of the things that um, you could still have good writing and have it and still have it be a B movie. Um, the last thing that I'll mention is when it comes to the actors. Uh, since it's a B movie, you're not necessarily getting a list talent. So when you're not getting a list talent there's probably a pretty good chance that you're not going to land a diamond in the rough. Not saying that it can't happen, but like the odds of you just all of a sudden pulling in the next Daniel day Lewis to be in a film about um, alien lawyers, the odds are very slim. So you're going to be stuck with um, an actor who maybe doesn't have as much experience or talent. And I feel that if you're going to go for one identifiable acting characteristic of a B movie, it is that um, the actor will often over and underact something could be right at the same time, but there's a lot of over and underacting going on, which um, I feel takes away from the performance and thus makes a B production a little bit more uh, visible. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's interesting as you go through this, um, it's, it's like very clear that your idea of a B movie is rooted from the 1980s onward. It is. Yes, exactly. Because like, I was to kind of add addition, just one more quick additional thing when I was trying to actually like explain this as best as I could is that the idea of the B movie has shifted so fucking much throughout the course of time. And even as I was looking at the Wikipedia page for like the average budgets throughout the, you know, throughout the course of the last 50 years or so, like these budgets and everything, I've just like, you have jumped up so goddamn much that, um, the lowest possible budget for so like in the 90s the average budget was 25 million dollars well as like you know those budgets continue to grow if you're on the tail end of the growing budget and 20 million dollars is considered a b movie like you could still do a lot of things right. really professionally with 20 million dollars but it, it still might have some B-movie characteristics. It, it might not. It may be fucking awesome and just a movie that costs $20,000 to make or $20 million to right, make. Right, right. So the, my initial um, my initial like impression of B-movies is all rooted prior to like maybe even 1970 even. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha, I gotcha. And there's, and there's totally nothing wrong with that. It's just, it's just really interesting because even, you know, even um, – you know, even as I was like writing this out, I was just sort of like, man, this sort of breaks a lot of the conventions about mm-hmm. like about like how I understand B movies. And 
you know, we'll, so we'll get we'll get into that in a minute. So I'll I'll add to it some of the things that like that would immediately pop to mind anyway that you didn't that you didn't quite hit on, but you got you got right there. Um, these are these movies are almost always because we're talking more simplistic scripts because we're talking concepts that are a little bit like out there. These are always sci-fi movies, horror movies, West some westerns. I mean, that's actually what it really really what it starts off of um, westerns and comedies. You're very, very rarely going to see a B movie drama. There's just like you just you need more than you need more um, you need more of a time investment. And like you mentioned, you need more of the if you want to draw people into a two hour movie where like you know couple uh, you know a couple is fighting over their dissolving marriage, you need you need to do better in terms of the actors that are going to be in it because right. like they're they have to do a bulk of the work. They have to do so much work. Mm-hmm. To you know, to make the characters believable and to make the performances believable. If you're talking like a shootout in an alley with um, you know two different between two, two, two different alien species, who the fuck cares who's getting <laughs> shot as the like? Right. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. That's what they're. That's what everyone's there to see. Um, so the, you know, so there's that, there's that kind of stuff. And I think one of the things that um, one of the things that they that is definitely becomes more apparent in, in the '80s. It, well probably starts in the 70s is that the everything even even when a movie is supposed to be a little bit more serious they're still very campy there's this mm-hmm. element of camp that even when we're talking about like you know a psychopathic murderer on the loose in the in the, in the desert southwest like there's there's still sort of intentional and and unintentional comedy built into it it's just very campy Oh, yeah, dude. No, I, I completely get what you're saying. You make a great point about the drama thing. And somewhere in my notes, I have a sentence like that. And um, there is literally no point in making a B-drama movie. <laughs> like, absolutely not. None. Um, and I noticed that um, they they exist. I mean, there, there are stuff playing film festivals throughout the country yep. that, um, you know, that is a drama. But however where I thought you hit it right on the head is in terms of the, the actors and stuff like, and one of the big things to getting somebody to watch marriage story is the, is the contrast of Adam driver and Scarlett Johansson. Mm -hmm. Like when people think marriage story is going to be like, Oh, well, Adam driver and Scarlett Johansson or a list actor, a list actor, so forth and so on. Those are the type of things like those names. That's the kind of shit that like draws people in because if you are like a movie gover, a movie goer, um, even somebody who maybe is a hardcore film enthusiast, if you are seeing two movies that are both about a divorce and one happens to have people you heard of and the other one is just like the, the B movie, you're going to go with like the people that you've heard of. It's just mm-hmm. that is just how it goes. Now, if you're in the same situation where it's like a sci fi movie, I feel that the playing field is a little bit more level. Like if I'm on Netflix and I'm in between two movies and one has stars and the other one doesn't but looks really fucking weird, I'm more than likely going to be prompted or at least interested enough to consider watching the weird non-famous people movie. Right. Like I, I'm something that like came to mind was like a movie like dead snow. Um, but mm-hmm. like these Nazi zombies that were like frozen in Austria and are, yeah. have been let loose on a ski resort. Um, like that's so fucking absurd. What would Adam driver elevate that movie? No, no, doesn't matter what party plays, he wouldn't elevate that movie. And I don't care. I want to see fucking Nazis kill people and then get their heads chopped off. Yeah, exactly, dude. Like, 
that movie has got such a unique concept that like it could be it could be your favorite actor ever in that movie and it may not improve it and stuff and like i know that everybody says like yeah like it's all about the characters and stuff and like i'll give people um I'll give people that sentence in certain regards, like obviously in a drama or in like a uh, maybe like a Wes Anderson movie. Yes, it is all about the characters. But if you're doing the, um, you know, Nazis frozen and through time over Austria on the ski resort, like, yeah, like the characters just have to be good. They don't have to be great because the the um, the premise is so weird and unusual and on the stronger side, actually, that is a very strong premise that that premise might kind of compensate for any shortcomings in terms of the writings of the characters. All you have to do with, with, with a concept like that, just make sure the characters are, you, you give us enough information about them that we will care when Mm -hmm. the zombies chew their faces off. Right. Exactly. Just make them likable. Give the one, give their one bad guy, you know, to have some contrast amongst the humans and stuff. And that's it. Make them characters, let them all want something and let something stand in their way and not all of them make it through. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So how about um, some of the people that are associated with, with the B movie industry that come to mind just off the top of your head? Okay. So my first one, this is a legend in B movies. Roger Corman, by far and away, the fucking um, man. This guy, the man. Yes, exactly. His Wikipedia dubs him the Pope of pop cinema. Still mm-hmm. alive at ninety six years old I, too. He was oh, producing stuff very recently. Yes, he was. Oh yeah, you yeah, that dude. Yeah. So um, like uh, at ninety six years old, he was from Detroit, Michigan. Which fucking giving a shout out to the Rust Belt here. There you go. Um, love love when people come from the Rust Belt. Uh, he started making movies in nineteen fifty four, and he had three movies come out that year. One is Highway Dragnet, The Monster from the Ocean Floor, and The Fast and the Furious. <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> all came out in the same year. He has gone. Vin Diesel the, is in that movie. Right. In case yes, anyone's yeah. wondering, and he still looks the same way still looks good today yeah he has done 385 movies um beginning his career in 1954 he's gone all the way up until at least on wikipedia it has his last two movies as death race 250 death race beyond anarchy he's got some of these sharktopus movies in there yeah and then one interesting thing is that out of all of these like um b movies some edgar Allan poe stories um, one thing he's got Phil in Philadelphia. He's an actor in Philadelphia. Um, like he's got Scream Three out of like all. I mean, you're looking at the list and it's like Bucket of Blood, Carnosaur Three, The Shepherd, Scream Three, Raptor, Escape from Afghanistan, and like Scream Three. Um, I thought was just it made all the sense in the world that he produced this because it's clear that Lance Heinrichson is a, a, a representation of him in mm-hmm. that movie. So Roger Corman by far and away is my number one, um, number one guy on, on my list. Like I said, the couple, but he is by far and away the guy you have to talk about first. A- abs- 100% absolutely. It, it basically begins. It, I shouldn't say it begins with, but like in terms of the person who is, far as people goes that define the genre he's the here's he's the place you start um he was also i didn't know this until very recently he's the fbi director in silence of the lambs get the fuck out of here really yeah he has like a couple conversations with clarice and um um oh gosh there's like two conversations he has with clarice but that's roger corman i'm I, like i'm just like why like 
I guess it fits. I just, it's one of those things that, you know, like, I'm just like, oh, okay, Roger Corman's in Silence of the Lambs. Um, but yeah, Roger Corman, I, w- I wonder if he gets these late, these production credits more recently, because I'm fairly certain he still owns a piece of a production company. Yes, I can confirm that there's, he does own something. It's just a work-related thing I can't get into the details yeah. of. But got, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. We'll won't, won't press you on that. But I mean, it's not like, you know, he's not like showing up on set. <laughs> like to... Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> to do stuff. But I hope to God that he's not. At 96 years old, he should be just like living it up and drinking wine all day long. Exactly. I mean, well, you know what though? James <laughs> Hong like still acts and does stuff. So yeah, it's like does. 94, <laughs> but whatever. Um, yeah, so Roger Corman, absolutely. That's where you start with. That's who you start with. Um, he he's he is a singular person that defines this genre. So I and you you hit a, you hit all the, the important stuff there on the head. So I won't add much more to it. Um, probably the the you know for I don't know not not a different side of the coin, but like a, a different kind of sect of of the B movie industry. And uh, one of Roger Corman's contemporaries that is doing a slightly different version of this. Um, mm-hmm. Russ Meyer. Yeah and. Okay. Boy, if, I don't know if you're a fan of women with huge tits, um, riding motorcycles and cars in the desert. Russ Meyer was your fucking guy, and it, it like that is that is sort of I guess kind of all these movies from this time period are people riding motorcycles in the desert, but mm-hmm. um, but Russ Meyer certainly was like all right, well, okay, we could do you know Death Race 2050 was great, but what about if we do Death Race 2050 with a bunch of porn actors, um, right. not wearing any clothing or wearing barely any clothing. And right. that was Russ Meyer's spin on it. Um, and you probably, even if you're not like super, even if you're not fam- super familiar, you probably have seen, um, you know, in, in some variety of pop culture, you've seen like a still of some buxom woman from a Russ Meyer movie. Some guarantee you, some woman dressed in black holding a gun with huge tits. Russ Meyer yeah. directed that fucking, directed that movie guarantee it. Yeah, it's like he, t- he decided like one day, he's like, man, let's take everything that dudes love and let's take the dudes out of it and let's just like replace it with really hot women. It's going to be gold, yep. guaranteed, you know? And like when you look at his filmography, I mean, he's got some really like cult hits and stuff in oh, there, yeah. like Faster Pussycat, uh, Kill Kill, um, which Tarantino was like supposed to remake somewhere throughout the, it still, I think, shows up on his um, IMDb pages, pages of Future Product. But um, yeah, like you got Black Snake in there. Uh, there's a Who Killed Bambi and everything like that, which um, I know from the Sex Pistols, but he made a movie about it and everything. So mm-hmm. like, it's, um, these movies uh, had their place in the world and stuff. And I'm sure that there's a lot to be learned from them and to study from and everything. But um, it's just a really interesting choice that, um, it's like, yeah, we're going boobs. Like, in, yep. in the end, go with boobs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it, it is I literally just, <laughs> if you just, like, I'm I'm clicking through his IMDb right now. I mean, like, the posters might as well just be, um, just be breasts. <laughs> like, that's just, yeah. like, the title of the movie and then just, like, a rack might as well be what it is. But it, it's it's definitely, and we'll talk about this when we when we get to the, the exploitation era, um, you know, there, it, it's not, I'm sure it's like stuff that he liked, but also like there is a point to it, to, mm-hmm. to pushing the envelope as far with how the women are going to look in his movies. There definitely is a point to it. 
Oh yeah, exactly. Like this whole thing is, um, it's very, very calculated. It is not just a coincidence that things are like this, you know, and especially when you're doing it that much, there is definitely a method to the madness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, who else do you have on this, on this little list here? Okay. So, um, I'm going to be that guy here and, um, I am actually one of these people, like as much as I did like the Lord of the Rings movies to me, Peter Jackson is the frighteners and these movies about hobbits that he made. Mm -hmm. And like, people forget that Peter Jackson was really rooted into the B horror movie oh, yes. and um, the B movie community before he was given the opportunity for the Lord of the Rings and before he was restoring Beatles movies, put in Mark Wahlberg uh, in, the, in the lovely bones and um, Peter Jackson, like uh, I feel doesn't get enough love for the Frighteners because the Frighteners is a whole shit ton of fun. It is an extremely underrated movie. And when you see this movie, you, especially compared to the Lord of the Rings stuff, you really get a feeling of where this guy came from and yep. like what his initial interests were. So like, I have to throw him into this. Oh, it's, a, it's a great fucking choice. Uh, the Frighteners. And then let's rewind it back even farther to bad taste. Um, mm -hmm. which is a movie that took him three years to shoot over weekends with his friends. Um, my favorite part of that is that the the main, I can't remember the main character's name in Bad Taste, but he had to keep his haircut for three years to, to make sure, like the exact same haircut for three years, to make sure that it kept continuity for Peter Jackson. Could you imagine now a Hollywood actor... Of being asked to keep the same, not like you know, they're, they're not like it. Like, well, we'll bring in for reshoots or whatever. No, keep the same haircut for two years, three years. That's oh, how Jared long it's Leto take. would go insane. He, Jared yeah. Leto would go fucking nuts, dude. Uh -huh. Like, he's probably changing his hair color, his hairstyle right now. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. And then, um, and then my 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 first Peter Jackson film was Dead Alive, or it also mm -hmm. gets called Brain Dead sometimes, and that is it is like an eighty minute. B movie schlock fest with zombies getting fucking ground up into dust and like there's guts everywhere. It's so fucking weird. It's fantastic. That that is you're right. Like all the stuff that Peter Jackson has done, it's incredible. It's amazing. I'm with you. I am frighteners. Peter Jackson. I'm bad taste. Peter Jackson. I'm dead alive. Peter Jackson. Yeah, I want him to go back and do something like the frighteners again. Really, oh, I'd love really that. Badly. I'd love that. <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> Great choice, and I'm going to go in a very similar direction. Someone with a, a hand, a, a large handful of blockbusters under their belt, but their roots are very firmly in B movies, and he's made no bones about like this is what he's what he's doing. Sam Raimi, Sam Raimi. Oh yeah, movie just came out or just coming out this weekend. Um, Doctor Strange mm -hmm. and the Multiverse of Madness. But I, he again to me, he is Evil Dead. He is. Um, well, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, the whole Evil Dead franchise. Um, yeah. He's Darkman. Like, right. that's Sam Raimi to me. That will always be Sam yeah. Raimi to me. And his, I, I still maintain that he made the best Spider-Man movie. Oh, Spider-Man 1 is fucking fantastic. That movie man. fucking It is fucks. so goddamn good. It, uh, I remember it came out during our like senior cut day and stuff like that. We had to go to the movie theater for the Vivian Vargas slideshow and stuff. And like that movie still holds up as to how good it is. And like, it really like seeing Tobey Maguire compared to like the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man's it's like, why did they even do the Andrew yeah. Garfield ones? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, they should have just given Toby uh, another movie and maybe let them bring in new villains or something. But um, he, Raimi and stuff like that, another Michigan man, Royal Oak in the house on That's that right. one. And um, the way that 
And speaking specifically about Doctor Strange here, and I, I have not seen it, but from some of the reviews and some of the stuff that I've heard on the radio today, it is basically like taking a Sam Raimi B-movie horror stuff and throwing it into mm-hmm. a Benedict Cumberbatch uh, superhero movie. So I, I can only imagine what he is going to do with that intellectual property. Yeah, I, I'm. it's one of those ones that I, I might have to go, you know, revisit the, you know, the first Doctor, Doctor Strange I guess it probably really doesn't matter, but you know, it, it might. Who knows? May or may not help. But I, like, this is this is definitely one that I do want to check out because it is it is someone that I I've admired for a long time, and getting and like I said, um, Kevin Smith was on Blind Check recently talking. They're doing a Sam Raimi um, filmography now, and it's mm-hmm. it is really interesting how how much Sam Raimi loves doing like like loves doing all the dirty work of making these kind of films like loves mm-hmm. like you I, i'm sure he's liked i'm sure he loved his experience doing spider-man but like i know that he loved his experience doing evil dead like loved it and yeah that's just oh. that's that that to me like screams b movie b movie uh director a person who loves making like i'm gonna go out in the fucking woods with my friends and do weird shit and it's gonna be like the best time of my life that feels mm-hmm. b movie yeah, exactly. That is somebody just like really giving a shit about the art form and stuff like that, you know, and really like um, clinging to their clinging to their roots. Yep. Uh, do you have anyone else? I have, I have a couple more I can throw out here real quickly. Oh, I just have a, one uh, because of Sam Raimi. I had to throw Bruce Campbell in there. Absolutely. Another another Royal Oak man in the house there. Uh, just in terms of like um, actors and stuff like that. Um, Bruce Campbell, I don't even think really made any headway into a major motion picture till maybe like Escape from Los Angeles. Like everything yeah. that he had done prior to that, even including the Maniac Cop stuff, is all sort of in like the B in the B movie realm. And then um, the last one that I will. Mention really quick um he's a great filmmaker um i've grown to really appreciate him um as far as a um as a public personality goes um he's a great voice for the um, lgbtq community um and just a really just i don't i could listen to this guy do interviews all day and it's john waters by far baltimore pride of baltimore right there john waters is fucking fantastic um a a very different type of b-movie that he's that he works with but mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't even know what you call it. Absurdist comedy, I guess. In the broadest possible paint stroke, I think. Yeah, it, it's but but yeah, he fits he fits right in with all these with everyone else. And I I just I cannot believe that Bruce Campbell, older Bruce Campbell has done more mainstream stuff that's popped, you know, like the yeah. Burn Notice show and some other stuff. But I can't believe that there wasn't a place in Hollywood. For this six foot four, ruggedly handsome, in shape, in shape guy with charisma, charm, and could deliver can deliver a line like no other. How could they not find a vehicle for him in the eighties and nineties? I have been wondering that for so long, dude. Like when you see these photos of like younger Bruce Campbell, that is a fucking stud right there. Absolutely, like that is a fucking stud, and it's like it almost. It's almost like um, it's almost like this guy to me. It's like he was supposed to break like at any point in time, and it just like never ever happened. And um, I still like I do not know how he did not find his way into like one of the Terminators or like one of the many crazy big budget action movies that came out between the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. It is it is lost on me. It's it's nuts. It's nuts. He should have been there, but 
it, again, it doesn't seem like he's one of those people that cares necessarily. I just think he's, I think he just has fun doing whatever it is that he does. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I really think he enjoys his career. I mean, who wouldn't? But I wish I had a yeah. Bruce Campbell-esque career at, like, anything. But um, you know what I mean? Like, it, it doesn't seem yeah. like that bothers him. No, it, it doesn't, actually. Like, it does not seem like it bothers him at all. And, like, I saw him in the, the Cleveland Wizard Con, like, the, one of the first ones they, they did about mm-hmm. five, six years ago now. And, like, he was great. So charismatic fucking charming just what a goddamn natural born entertainer and stuff so like it's clearly like he is still loving life despite never really having this you know ultra mega superstardom Mm -hmm. career um i'll I'll throw out a couple more here real quickly and uh so i'll just i'll start with this jack nicholson started in b movies um in fact he was in uh roger corman's the raven and then we're a movie we'll get to later, obviously, uh, Easy Rider um, in terms of B-movies. So Nicholson gets a start there. Um, mm-hmm. Probably someone you don't really think about as B-movies now simply because of the way uh, his movies have aged. Cronenberg firmly yeah. was making B-movies. They just, as time has gone on, they get re-eval- they've get they been reevaluated more critically because they're clearly, are, he was clearly working at a different level than, mm-hmm. like, everyone, than like everyone else was at the time. Um, right. And then uh, a couple of a couple of staples from like when we were much younger, but um, it, I mean it, it's TV, but it, it has to do with the movies. Um, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, yeah, comes to mind immediately. And then mm-hmm. my, my amongst my all time favorites uh, in this in this realm, MST three K baby, Mystery Science yep. Theater three thousand. Fantastic. Oh yeah, yes, definitely, dude. Yeah, MST three K is uh, by far and away. As, as B as it comes and stuff like that. Just say a bunch of people watching B movies and making comments about them. Exactly. Yes, definitely. Elvira was a great um, pickup. I hadn't thought about that name in so long and stuff. But yeah, I remember as a kid, the very, very hot um, horror persona and stuff that she was and all mm-hmm. her, some of the TV appearances and everything that, that she made. And yeah, dude, you're right. Like I was just checking the, uh, the Nicholson filmography and everything. And he's got a lot of freaking B movies mm-hmm. in there. And he, you're right. Like he was, did the, the, the Raven and stuff. He does uh, Roger Corman's the terror and everything. Yep. And like these first like couple movies that he's done, like he was, did a version of little shop of horrors studs lawn again, the broken land, thunder Island, fight the fury backdoor hell. Like, Definitely sounds like B movie territory. Yep, exa- exactly. And it's and it's really again easy. Uh, easy Rider makes Hopper, Fonda, and Nicholson pop, obviously. But um, you know, I mean, that was I don't. I there's no way that they thought when they made Easy Rider that that was going to be like what it was. It it, mm-hmm. it should have just been another B movie for all of you. But we'll we'll, we'll get into we'll get into that uh, a little bit later. Um, so, what do you think are some of the disadvantages of working in a B in the B movie realm? Okay, so the disadvantages, um, obviously, the money thing is one. You are in a very, very limited mm-hmm. amount of, of money and stuff, and that could impact production, story, in so many different ways, dude, big time on that. Um, another disadvantage that I feel is a disadvantage is um, it's kind of rooted in exactly how much time a filmmaker wants to spend in the B-movie world. Now, sometimes this decision is one that the um, the filmmaker kind of has to be in, you know, like it's a very, very complicated industry mm-hmm. and it's not 
it's, it's not easy to do anything. Okay. It's definitely not easy to get something made and it's sure as fuck not easy to make a jump from a B movie to like a major motion picture and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Believe me, Sam Raimi took a long time for him to even get the, um, the Spider-Man movie and stuff. So I feel that a major disadvantage is sort of like some of the connotations that come with B movies and depending on how long somebody spends in this realm, you kind of work yourself into like, Hey, this is B movie guy. And unless you're making really awesome, awesome stuff on like a low budget, I feel that like you are probably going to get stuck into this little universe and it's going to be like maybe extra harder for you to get out of it because, you know, you, you don't really have, for starters, you don't really have the experience with the larger productions. You also don't really have experience like turning an Aaron Sorkin script into something, um, into something that a product that like a lot of people mm-hmm. see. So while and if it makes you happy, go for it. But if your end goal is to, land a fast and the furious movie i feel that you almost have to be like super cautious as to like what kind of b movies you make and how much time you spend in this world yeah yeah that's a really good point and i think um i I was i was going to go in a similar direction with this i mean obviously you hit on like the the money stuff that's like the biggest the biggest disadvantage but i i had i had this i had this idea that you're, you're touching on as like the general perception of b movies yeah. That it's it's just like a stink. Whether you're a director, an actor, a writer, it's kind of hard to get off, um, off of you. Like that you're you're oh you're the guy that does this. You're the girl that does this. Like that's like you're a scream queen. You're not like really an actress. Um, that stink is kind of hard to remove. And, right. And I think a lot of times, unless unless someone in these unless someone in these B movies really. Um, elevates elevates the the you know the the concept be it you know elevates the direction elevates the acting elevates the writing that it's it's kind of laid bare for you to see like just exactly what they are like for example go going let's go back to when we did you and i did um texas chainsaw 3d very very much a very much a b movie and mm-hmm. you know like it, i made i made mention of of the scene where Alexander Daddario is like chained up and yeah. her shirt's partway open. And yeah. Alexander Daddario is one of the most gorgeous women you will ever see. Mm. If she was, if she was, I don't want to say like a better actress, but if she was a, um, an actress that could shoulder the, the weight of a, of a, of a, of a, a, you know, a, a top line, a production that, that sort of scene with her like that would be iconic. Because mm-hmm. you you would be able to go back and say like I'll oh, remember when, you know remember when so and so when Alexander Daddario was in this movie, and yeah. you'd go back and see this scene and like you know obviously she's hot but obviously she's there like acting her ass off, and right it she just doesn't quite rise to that so that scene isn't anything in the annals of anything, but mm-hmm. if that was someone who was clearly tick if this if that was a um, early Jennifer Lawrence movie. Yeah, we would be looking at that at that movie and that particular scene much differently if that was Jennifer Lawrence. Definitely, yes. <laughs> Do not underestimate the power of the stank. Okay, like that is something that um, if you do a really shitty job, 
or even if you take one of these B movie um, roles or projects that are very extreme for the sake of being extreme, the some of that funk may be like hard to wash off of you and everything. And like I'm, I don't, you know, I'm not saying that the um, the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre here was something that tanked Alexandra's career. No, no, no. I, I, I don't think that it does. I, I feel that like her career had kind of plateaued and if um i mean believe me like it's hollywood and there's a lot of things that are still on the table she could get cast as something and win an academy award in, sure. in three to 30 years from now you know so who knows maybe like what we're talking about here might end up becoming some iconic image of horror like 20 30 years from now but because um, but because she's kind of like plateaued and kind of like worked her way into this corner where like you know she is attractive woman maybe like attractive woman with like a, a little bit of depth to her and yeah. stuff like that you know like and it's always sunny she mm-hmm. didn't play like just her default like ditzy um persona so like if she didn't like necessarily get pinned into this situation and she maybe did have a career more along the lines of jennifer lawrence the texas chainsaw 3d um, would be one of these movies that like every every year around Halloween becomes like relevant again for some reason. Like, oh, like the the millennials are rediscovering the Texas Chainsaw 3D and stuff yeah. like that. But it's just not the case. Exactly. If if um, just to put a bow on this, there's a reason why Alexandra Daddario isn't isn't um, the Red Witch in the MCU because right. she's not as good as an actress as Elizabeth Olsen. Right. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so how about uh, how about some advantages? Okay, so the advantage that I have, it's a big one, and it's a, kind of like an umbrella advantage. Creative freedom. Yeah. Like when you're making B-movies, you don't have a lot of restrictions on. You might not even have a studio breathing down your neck. Or, hey, the studio that you're going to might just be some guy in an office somewhere that wrote a check and you'd never see him again and stuff. Mm-hmm. So because the B movie industry does not have to be accountable for the same kind of dollars and um, cents that the um, non B movie film industry has to account for. That means you could basically do whatever the hell you want. And that's how we end up getting names of movies like monsters from the floor of the ocean. And since the faster pussycat kill, kill. Mm-hmm. So um, that creative freedom kind of really lets you do whatever the hell you want to do. Exactly. That I just put it down as, creatives get more creative control um Mm -hmm. the directors the actor i mean everyone the people doing set design prop work they probably get a lot more creative control over the things they're doing because you're right there's you know a a movie that like well now i mean it's a little bit different now which we'll obviously get to but if someone wrote me and you you know a five million dollar check for a movie i I can't imagine that they're going to send someone from the studio to to look at the dailies to sit in and like what you know like see what we're doing go over they don't care like they, no. <laughs> they didn't give us a lot of money, so they clearly don't care. We're going to be able to do whatever we want. Um, so yeah, the creators get more creative control. It, it also sort of it also I think um, you know because again you're I think this is sort of kind of comes back to the idea of like necessity it, necessity being the mother of invention because mm-hmm. you are working with so little you know such a small amount of money for you know if you're doing an action movie or something and you got to do some you know some kind of sequence it kind of. It, it kind of behooves you to figure out how you can make something look like this without actually doing it or having CGI available or whatever else. And I, I always go back to um, when we when we uh, covered uh, The Raid and The Raid 2. Um, 
the the long you know the um the long shot sequence in the in the car chase from the raid two, um, mm-hmm. you know if that if this was if that was a movie made in the United States and you know it's it's a it's a Fast and Furious type movie there would have been a lot of CGI and some other you know there would have been a whole fucking rig set up for how we can get this one long shot to go from car to car, right? Gareth Gareth Evans is like, well, what if I just pass the camera on to the actors that are in the cars, have someone dress up like a car seat, so we don't even notice that that's a person sitting there, have him pass the camera through, so the camera's actually moving all the way through these cars instead of going through all the extra steps and adding probably $10 million to the budget, how about we just literally pass the camera car to car? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because they don't have the money to just like, oh, we'll fix it in post or whatever. You have to really get creative in terms of how you actually make the movie and stuff. And when you don't have like a super, super huge budget, you have to really like account for some of the things that like um, people who work with $200 million have the luxury of just like, you know, we'll just CG the hell out of the eye, the hell out of that, you know, just get something on camera and we'll take care of it. You don't really have that in like the low budgets of um, right. the film circuit. And, and, you know, and those, that's where some of the, just some of the best stuff comes from that, from that. Like, mm-hmm. well, we had to do that. We had to do it this way because like how, how else were we going to do it? Like we can't, right? Like I can't pay someone else to do it, so it just had to be done this way. And sometimes those are the best results. Yeah, exactly, dude, for sure. And like it really does add a certain level of authenticity and like a realism when somebody does figure out a CGI workaround. Yep, yep, exactly. All right, so let's let's get into the a little bit of the history lesson here, um, since we've now we've gone through the. The ideas of the, how we how we think of B movies right now. Let's actually go back and investigate the history of the B movie a little bit. Um, so we're going to start off in the Depression era and this need for cheap entertainment. So, I mean, there's a, a multitude of reasons why the B movie develops, but there's two factors that weigh into it very heavily. And one, studios are trying to maximize their production costs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're spending, um, <clears throat> you know, you're spending a, a shit ton of money on something like the Ten Commandments. Um, I, I for a long time that was like the most expensive movie ever made. Yeah, like, I forgot how long. I mean, it, for a very long time, it was the most expensive movie ever made. Well, okay, so how else are we? We spent all this money on making Egypt, on making the Middle East. How are we gonna like? What are we gonna do with this? Why don't we shoot more movies that are set in Egypt and the Middle East? Since <laughs> right. we have, we went out of this way to make all this shit. We have the studio space, so uh, you know. And this obviously, it's not from the 1930s, but that's this is where the idea develops. It's like we've already, we've already have the studio for this. So why don't we just go ahead and shoot a shorter movie? Since we're not going to have the, we're not going to be able to uh, invest the same amount of time into it. Why don't we just go ahead and shoot another movie on the sets that we already have? Is right. where a lot of this, where what you know, probably the biggest factor where this where this develops, and then there's the other uh, part of this, we're in the Great Depression, and we have a lot of unemployed people with a lot of time in their hands, but not a lot of money to necessarily spend on seeing all of the top flight films. So, mm-hmm. okay, well we have a we have a you know now the studios have now that they're maximizing their production space or their production um, values and production costs. They have a ton more to show people. So now all of a sudden that um, instead of paying for one movie, this sort of sets up the, you know, what we kind of think of what history and pop culture history has taught us about this era of movies. 
now we have like the full newsreel, um, mm-hmm. the serials or the shorts, and then you get the B movie and then you get the A movie. So for all these people who are, you know, suddenly unemployed, you get to, you know, for your, I don't know how much it would have cost then, a nickel probably, um, 10 cents, I mean, literally, probably like a nickel or 10 yeah. cents. Um, but for that 10 cents, now you get to spend like essentially four or five hours of your day in the movie theaters. You're getting more bang for your buck. Um, right. So that's where a lot of that comes from. Chema, could you imagine studios today wanting you to get more bang for your buck? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> I actually can't even think of any organization right now that wants you to get more bang for your buck. No, not at all. Not at all. But it, it is it is sort it's just so funny to me, like how we we've talked about this so many times. Watching action movies that are like two hours and forty minutes long, you know, it depends on the movie, obviously. Like I I thoroughly enjoyed the Batman. Probably could have mm-hmm. still shaved about ten minutes off of it. But yeah. it didn't feel like a three hour movie. That that one clipped along nicely. But when we did our when we did our review of It Chapter Two, mm-hmm. that movie oh. felt even longer. It was two hours and thirty five minutes or something, two hours and forty minutes. Yeah, it felt even longer than that. Yeah, that um, that's thank the um, what is it the middle unnecessary? What would be the third act or something like that? Like when they're all like going when they're all as adults having yeah. encounters with Pennywise, yes. two of them as kids and then again as an adult. So yep. yes, that movie um, that movie plugged along um, like really really slowly and like the Batman. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, my first time in the theater, I got stuck sitting next to kids, mm. so. When you got to the point in the movie where the seawall starts to break, that's when I really felt the the length. And it, most of it is just like, can you kids shut the fuck up already? But I can't be that guy because <laughs> his fucking father's sitting two chairs down. Mm-hmm. But when I rewatched it on HBO, um, I was like, I was. It seriously felt like so fast. Yeah. Like it, the, the the movie the second time around was a completely different viewing experience. Um, in, in the positives, and then I loved it the first time too. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I I just I guess I I can't believe that movie studios now want to invest. Excuse me, it's coughing. Want to invest that much money into a movie they can't run. But, yeah. you know, but like, you know, especially the way movie, you know, movie theaters aren't open all day long anymore. Um, no. So you can only run the Batman like, what, f- four times a day? Yeah, if you're lucky. If like you're starting. Lu- I mean, obviously new, you have multiple theaters, yeah. but like four times a day. That's it. Right. And like, man, I got to tell you, like, this is like the crazy, like, this is like a standard now. Like, it, it, they have like, nobody is showing any signs of like going back to like a shorter movie. In fact, they're only getting longer and it just really shows and demonstrates the beauty of Joker where you were able to make a movie like that for, um, for way less money than you would for a lot of these, um, you know, especially the Marvel stuff. Mm-hmm. And one that wasn't two and a half hours long and they did it and it was amazing. And it's like, God, guys, go back to this a little bit. Like at some point in time, even for being the biggest fan of a movie that one could possibly be three and a half hours in the theater is not something that like I, that not something that I almost feel like I have to prepare for it. Like I have yeah. to like get it in my mind mm-hmm. that I'm going to be in the theater for three hours. I have to get in my mind that like I will see the outside again at seven o'clock at night or whatever the hell time it is. <laughs> and like um, 
the other thing too, um, and like I didn't do this a lot when I was younger, and I definitely I, I've only done it once in recent years, and that's with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is where if the movie's over like a certain amount of time, like there's not going to be a good chance that I'm going to like go, the movie may be awesome, but I'm not going to go back for a repeat feeling. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, and in terms of like people wanting to get multiple showings and to get your second weekend numbers up it just makes sense to go a little bit shorter. Like I'm not asking for that much here. Let's just make, you know, shave 20, 30 minutes off some of these movies and make that the standard. I, I, I agree. I, I mean, Chad, there's a point in time where uh, I'll, I'll actually, I'll have something here for you in a little bit, but there's a point in time where like an Arnold action movie was at like the top end, a hundred minutes. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like that's stuff. Minutes. Yeah. That's it. I know. And, and it, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. And you could run a hundred minute movie a whole lot in a movie theater, like a lot. Right. Oh my God. And like when I'm looking at the outline here and just to think that um, at this point in time, like they had newsreels and then like the shorts and the serials and stuff tapped onto it too. Like you'd never get that shit uh, t- today, you know, which, um, but like you don't have to have it because the movie's three hours. <laughs> the movie's three hours. And at least my, my um, coming attractions for the Batman were close to 20 minutes. Yes. Uh, did you see it in the Cinemark Theater? Yes. Okay. Yeah, my, I did too. Um, the, the Cinemark that's by us. We had easily 20 minutes. It might have even been longer, man. Like, and I, I, think, I, I think I'm taking really out – there were like two actual commercials wedged yeah, in Yeah, you got those in there now too. Yeah, yeah. so I took those out. Yeah. So it was like basically like 18 minutes of, of preview. Which is insane. Which for movies that I either already saw the trailer for or did not give a flying fuck about mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and like, yeah. I got to tell you, there's this theater chain out here called ArcLight. And I, I think mm-hmm. there might be an ArcLight in Orange, in like that new shopping center that they built in I Orange, think Ohio. You're correct. Yes. So, like, this this theater chain um, out here is one of the more expensive theater chains. And when, like, when Jess and I went to see Black Klansman there and I dropped, like, something like 30 plus 35 plus for tickets. I was like, Whoa. And then when we get into the movie theater, they had three trailers and I was like, I almost like, it took me, <laughs> worth it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Holy shit. Like we actually like, they make beer arc, like brews their own beer. Like we're yeah. drinking like the arc light beer at like, you know, $15 a beer and stuff. I get in there. It was uh, the trailer for Michael Moore's most recent movie and like two like sort of indie flicks and they were right on into the movie. I, I like literally had to do like a double take and I'm like, did, did they mess up or something? Like <laughs> did somebody just forget to like run the trailers? But, um, it's we but but it was awesome and like I was like well that's how it should be done especially mm-hmm. because things are on the internet now yeah ex- exactly exactly um so so this also this at this point in time the way studios negotiated um with their movies with, and with the movie theaters uh <clears throat> they got like a fixed rate for their B movies and mm-hmm. basically this guaranteed that every single B movie was going to be profitable for the studio. Um, so we have the, you know, so we have the depression, we have this need for the studios to go ahead and, um, try to maximize their, you know, their production costs. And then, and then at the other end of this, basically because of the way they're negotiating their A movies, their B movies are guaranteed to make money for them. So like Mm -hmm. this little, like, this is like a perfect storm of how the, from the depression, uh, and heading into the gold age of Hollywood, the B movie really becomes more than just like an add-on this is like really where it does become something it morphs into something more interesting basically 
Yeah, dude, of course. And like when you are set up and you're stacking the deck in your favor so you succeed every single time, you're going to be giving um, audiences more exposure to these types of movies. Not everybody's going to like them, but there's going to be enough people seeing them to garner some kind of attention and a mm-hmm. demand for more. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so that, uh, unless you have anything to add there, that takes us out of the um, out of the depression and the era of super cheap entertainment. Do you have anything else there? I do not. Let's go right on into the golden age. The golden age of Hollywood, the 1930s, really it kind of extends to the 60s, but for the, for this particular, um, for the B-movie, the golden age of Hollywood goes from the 1930s to the 1950s. Um, and Chema, I have, instead of just laying this out flat, I got some trivia for you that'll, that'll sort nice. of help, help kind of place like what, you know, how the B-movie is changing at this point in time. So like I said, so just keep that last point in mind about the fixed rate that basically B-movies were guaranteed to make a profit. Um, so Chema, this is, and this is, this is for this question, this relates just to the 1930s, but you can extrapolate from, uh, you know, you can extrapolate how the industry was going from this question. Um, what percentage of films produced in the 1930s were considered B movies? Percentage of movies. I'll give you, I'll give you a a 5% buffer either way. Oh, okay, cool. I will say, um, 42%. 42%. That's your final answer. Final answer. Incorrect, Chema. The correct answer for all the all the movies that were, that were produced in, 19, in the 1930s, 75% were B-movies. 4,000 wow. films were, yeah. were B-movies. And it's one of those things like you... I, I always... I always make that joke. Um, I always make this joke when we, when we talk about... When you and I talk about sports and I talk about sports with anyone, especially football, um... We always get like pissed off when the Browns don't run the ball enough. I mean, you have two of the best running backs in the NFL turn around and hand them the ball, and big deal. You only gain three yards this play, but guess what? You won't go broke making a profit. I always, I always come back to that. Three yards is still three positive yards. It's better than an incompletion or no yards. Um, right. So with these B movies, even if they're only turning over, let's say you know a, a movie costs ten thousand or twenty thousand to make, and it makes back mm-hmm. forty thousand, well. It's a profit. And if, yeah. you, if you keep making a profit, you will not go broke. So even though these films aren't, uh, you know, I'm sure at this point in time, this is when B, there were some B-movies that really broke out and had like, sig, you know, brought in some significant dollars. But for the most part, these movies weren't like, they weren't how, you know, it wasn't like Halloween, you know, on a, on a $300,000 mm-hmm. budget making back like $80 million or something. Um, right. But for the most part, these movies are making back more than enough money to fund themselves and then fund the next B movie. And if you're a studio, fuck, double down. Let's make more yeah. of these because these these are you know you might have you might make as I found out during the research, some of these B movies, even though you know even if they're not like massively successful, two or three of them basically offset a loss from like some A movie that they made that bombed. And yeah, th- that's essentially how they were used. Sort of like, you know, like they're going to make up the margins for these studios at this point in time. Right. Oh, yeah, dude. This is actually a pretty decent business model. And it reminds me of the movie Yes Man, where Jim Carrey started loaning out a bunch of money to people at the bank. And turns out they were all so happy to be getting small loans that they needed that they were paying the money back. And thus the (laughs) bank was making a ton of money. (laughs) Right. This is exactly how that is and stuff like that. If you are, you're right, you cannot go broke turning a profit. And when you are, you know, a machine and taking these movies that are costing not all that much to make, 
turning them out and they, they are making money, you know, a couple of these things, you're right, may make up for a movie that totally tanks. And like, who would have ever thought like a, a studio may be saved by, um, you know, Amazon, Amazon zombies Four. you know what I'm saying? Right. Or they, 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 because of the way that this business model is and stuff. And I got to say that it's actually not bad. It's pretty fucking decent of a business model. And I, in terms of like anything that's going on in the world today, I mean, maybe like the Nigerian, the Nollywood um, mm-hmm. film industry, which is very, very, very internal. I mean, like when we get into the mockbusters and stuff like that and like where you could buy those, like in Nollywood, you're you're basically like shooting a movie, cutting it, printing out some DVDs and selling them at the, the market and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So um, and guess what? People make money off of that. So yep. it is a um, <clears throat> sorry about that. It is a you know, not like the modern day's studio model, but if we're talking in terms of sustainability, like it is pretty good to spread the wealth around and have some investments that don't make you as much money in case anything bad happens with something you just sunk a whole bunch of money into. Exactly. Chumba, you don't want to put all of your money in crypto. It's right, okay right. to put some of your money in crypto, but you want a nice diverse portfolio um, you know, you want a nice diverse portfolio so you don't tank. So like, oh, you know, you obviously you're growing your money over time. And that's basically the approach that they had. It was just like, okay, well, let's make our one, you know, if you're Columbia or something or, um, excuse me, if you're Paramount or something at this point in time, you're funding, I can't, I can't think of a 1930s Paramount movie. I'm sure there's a huge one that I'm not thinking of right now, but you know, you, you sink 250000 a million dollars into a movie at that point in time and it doesn't bring back anything close to it. You're going to need those five or six movies that are making that are going to turn over a fifty thousand dollar profit to go ahead and make all that up. It's it's just at this point in time, it is smart business to mm-hmm. to diversify your portfolio and make sure that there aren't that many weak spots. Because as you know, we can we can talk about this. I'm sure it's happened recently. Um, move independent movie studios that sort of go for broke on one thing and they are mm-hmm. gone in yeah. the in the blink of an eye. They're gone. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I know that there's some modern example of it I, that I cannot think of and yeah. stuff. But like you're you are totally fucking hitting this on the head here and stuff. Diversify the absolute shit out of that portfolio. And back then they didn't have the comfort of uh, home video and DVD sales and stuff mm-hmm. to boost, you know, lost revenue. They didn't have uh, TNT showing up with a nice hefty check to show Armageddon on Sunday night. They didn't stuff. have China. You know, they didn't have China yeah, they didn't, and two billion China. people to make sure that your, your movie turned a profit. Right, right. They, they didn't have all of these modern kind of um, modern like uh, shoulders to lean on in case or insurance policies in case things didn't go over so well in the theater. So like the, the business model back then you really had to pump whatever the fuck you could out of something, you know, like it's like going into a house and taking the copper pipes and the the wood off the floors, like really (laughs) like gutting it for all it's worth because that's kind of like what you have to do and stuff. And like when you're in this industry that um, is very, very, very up and down like a roller coaster mm-hmm. and nobody really knows like what, I mean, people in general know that a Spider-Man movie is going to go out and make like a fuck ton of money yeah. and stuff. That's now, but back then 
you really didn't know if certain things were going to hit. And like, even, even like today, like, you know, the, the superheroes and the franchises are all pretty much guaranteed for success unless you really somehow screw it up. Joss Whedon talking to you, but, um, <laughs> but like, if you look at some of these other non franchising movies and it's insane that I even struggle to name one off the top of my head, <laughs> there are many. But, I know, I know, but like, you know, no one, no one really knows like if, you know, whatever movie's coming out this weekend that's not Doctor Strange, no one knows if that's going to do a fuck ton of money or not. So, and especially back then where there weren't as many theaters, I mean, there's just like a lot of things to consider here. So like these people back then really had to be creative and be smart and be resourceful about how they spent the money and how they managed to make the money back. And like this fixed rate um, idea, you know, that we were talking about before, like, that's like a great thing. Like, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to do something that's guaranteed to make money, like why not do it and do it often? Mm-hmm. Exactly. You would be stupid not to. Um, another trivia, trivia question here for you, Chema. And this is going to get into sort of like what um, what really be, what really def- define the genre in uh, the, the B movie. I guess it's not really a genre, but the B movie industry at this pre- period of time. Um, what was the gimmick of the wildly popular 1938 Odor movie? And an Odor movie has anything to do with horses. Um, of the 1938 Odor movie, The Terror of Tiny Town. What was the gimmick? Is it like the odorama? Is that what they call it? Like where you you spray different smells and stuff in the audience to give like uh, a sensory. They, they kind did of that feeling. with some B movies, but like basically, it just meant that um, if you have horses on set, they got to eat oats. Oh, interesting. So is it okay. odor? Oh, odor. O a t e r. I gotcha. Okay, I gotcha. Yep, that makes sense. But but they did. However, they did do that. In the nineteen in the nineteen thirties for a lot of these movies, but um, what was the gimmick of Terror of Tiny Town? Terror of Tiny Town. I do not know. I, that's one I, I I saw the name in doing research, but I didn't look up the gimmick for it. They're all little people. Really? All yeah. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think the. Sense. I don't think yeah. the M word is PC anymore. I don't think it ever was actually. Um, yeah. So they're all little people. Um, and at this point in time. The, the B movie was essentially, it was all Westerns, essentially. Um, the Westerns were popular anyway. Um, so mm-hmm. if you're going to go ahead and make Westerns, you have a, you have a set for as many as you want to make. So they, they kind of became a little bit more outlandish uh, with what they were doing with the Westerns to make them stand out. So, hey, why not have a bunch of professional little people come on and, uh, and kind of, you know, I don't want to say it's like pure exploitation, but certainly it is edging towards exploitation. When you yeah. name your movie The Terror of Tiny Town and there's going to be a bunch of little people in it. Yeah, you're definitely going into um, that line for fucking sure on that. And after hearing the name, I don't know how I didn't get to that. <laughs> but yeah, you're not going to see a gimmick like that in the uh, movie industries today. That's for sure. But but this sort of, um, you know, the way that we think about B-movies now, um, there is some of that. There's at least like a, a whisper of that in the 1930s. Where mm-hmm. things became a little bit more outlandish because we had to, especially if you're from one of the non, um, we'll get to this question in a second. Um, if you're not from one of the major studios and you were from, you were from one of these um, studios that was just making um, B movies, you had to do something to make them stand out. So certainly the the idea of these um, kind of outlandish premises is rooted very much in the very beginning of them, 
but I, again, I think it doesn't really take shape until a, a, you know a couple of decades later. Yes, yes. As far as like where this whole thing and how they open it up and where it goes, we just see like little like um kind of like little like little bits along the trail here and stuff like this terror tiny town. There's this movie called Freaks, which is definitely like walking that same line mm-hmm. of being expletive and stuff like that of you know people uh, circus performers yeah. and everything like that so um while these nuggets are there it doesn't really become like it's you know it doesn't really become like this sort of um a pop culture thing that we think of until much later on yeah exactly and for the most part like if you were doing a western it was a pretty straightforward western i mean john yeah. john wayne was in a bunch of these western b movies in the 1930s and 40s so um yeah they're they're definitely more straightforward but the, the like you said like they're just little glimpses of what would become uh, are popping up at this point in time uh, right zombies don't zombies don't enter into the wild west for a little while <laughs> right right um, or aliens or anything else. Um, very good point. Um, this is a long, this is kind of a long explainer here, but, um, this is the next question here for you since I just talked about the studios. So Paramount, MGM, uh, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, and RKO are mm-hmm. the, called the big five studios during the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah. United Artists, Columbia, Universal are referred to as the little three. Okay. Um, what were the studios called that produced a very large percentage of the era's B movie? What were they called? Oh God. Um, Oh my God. There's a name for them that very much sums up the, the B movies origins. I have no idea, but for some reason, as soon as you say it, I have a feeling like it's going to make all the sense in the world. So, and, and like there, it's not like there was like one, it's not like there was like a, a set of them. This is literally anybody that made a B movie. Um, fell under this sort of it's very it's derogatory for sure um, mm-hmm. but they called them Poverty Row Studios Poverty okay yeah I saw that on Wikipedia yeah, okay Poverty that's what that meant okay gotcha okay, Poverty gotcha. Row Studios uh, you know essentially because they had literally no money to make anything and some of the some of the productions that they were making like even you know even like uh, RKO actually had their own um, B-movie division and mm-hmm. guarantee you that B movie division for RKO was worth all of the Poverty Row Studios put together. Yeah, um, without a doubt. Yeah, they they were making like to the point where like these um these Poverty Row Studios would would you know they'd make their odor or they'd make you know whatever, um and sometimes they'd have to like they the producers themselves and the directors themselves would go on the road to try to sell these movies to theaters, um like that's the level as you mentioned Nollywood before that's the level of what Poverty Row theater Poverty Row Studios were doing back in the 1930s. Man, could you imagine just being the guy that has to like go around like door to door to theaters to like sell <laughs> movies and stuff to people? Oh, like it's like one of these things that um after hear you know after just hearing you go through that it, I could see it. I could totally fucking see it, but it just never like occurs to me that like, you know, somebody shows up with the briefcase and stuff. Oh, hi, is your manager here? He opens up the case, you know, it's got like some type of stuff to like entice him in there. Like, Hey, let's go check out a movie. Like, and, um, while I I can't imagine the difficulty of that back then. Yeah. I, I mean, even though like, let's just say like you're a theater owner you have movies showing and some guy shows up wanting to like sell you movies to play at your studio. Like 
it just sounds like the most complicated arrangement ever. Like, are you buying the movie from this guy at a flat rate? Then you have to make the money back on it. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's so many fucking parts here that um, you to, to think about, like oh, more complicated than buying a car. Exactly. And now, and now Disney just tells you to fuck off. If you want to buy one of their movies to, to show anywhere. <laughs> right, um, that's right. But yeah, it's just, it's a, such an interesting sort of like the, again, the poverty row movie, the poverty row studios, collectively you know were worth one-tenth of you know even universal which is one mm-hmm. of the smaller studios at that point in time um but it's just very interesting that there's there's this whole like you want to talk about bootstrapping could you imagine being the producer of a movie and then like driving to kansas to sell yeah. it in you know to sell it to some theaters in wichita oh my god i know like selling it to those conservative christian theater owners and stuff like that that are out there like yeah we're not interested in your amazon uh vampire movie get out of here yeah it's very it's just a very interesting point in time for this um so i this is and this is something that kind of um i guess this is where like the b movie the idea of the b movie is is very different at this point in time so like even though productions were less expensive i i wouldn't call them cheap um in fact like a lot of the um a lot of the major studios you know if if they had their own b-movie division or if they were like in touch with either um you know columbia or universal or whomever or even the poverty row studios they were like looking for they would watch their movies and go okay this whoever did the set design on this we're bringing them in because Mm -hmm. that set looks much better than a fucking five thousand dollar set Um, so it really wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that they were cheap. Um, they're just less expensive. And obviously we've mentioned, we had a stretcher dollar wherever it can. So like when someone made like a really, you know, someone had like a really great map painting that matched up really well with like whatever set that they were using, that was like, that was, especially at that point in time in in Hollywood, that was like a signal to producers and directors. Like we got to find this guy because this guy fucking knocked out of the park with no money. So yeah. so like less expensive, but not necessarily cheaper. Yeah. There's nothing about this industry that is cheap. <laughs> like right, everything, right. it costs money to fucking do anything. Uh, standard permits to shoot in LA for 10 days. The permits go for 10 days are 600 bucks just for the permit. And what you have to have to get this permit it costs you like so much more, like in terms of like insurance um, mm-hmm. with the, with the, with COVID still being COVID, there's all these different protocols that you have to take, which costs you money and stuff to like, to invest in and everything. Um, and then also you have to like to pay the people to not only like work on your set, but also to like administer everything and do all this stuff. Well, there's all this kind of, man, there's just like so much that goes into just getting the permit alone, just being able to like walk down the street with a camera and have the cops and not tell you to go home. There's a lot of money that goes into that. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nuts, dude. It's nuts. How, I mean, and I'm sure, I'm sure even then it had, you know, even then there was certain expenses that it had, but like, and I'm sure, but that I'm sure that's where all their money went was into mm-hmm. like paying, <laughs> paying the right permits and stuff. And then it's like, all right, we got $400 for sets. Yeah, good luck. Right, <laughs> right. I know, and it just shows that even even back then, 
that like the business is still a business and stuff, you know, like as, as much as people and like, I get, I get lost in this stuff too sometimes where like, you know, you're looking at a movie that's done really, really well. And you're just like, my fucking God, that's art. But underneath that art, it is still a fucking business in there. Mm -hmm. And like these businesses have to make money and they have to be able to continue to make products. And some of the ways that they do it, whether it's hiring the guy who, took 300 bucks and made it look like a $30,000 set or negotiating all kinds of crazy rates. Like, I mean, there's just the, the business side of this is just so interesting. I mean, there's mm-hmm. shit that goes on here that just does not go on in other businesses. I, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That's, that's how the lawyers in Hollywood keep themselves employed. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> so just real quickly here, I got, before we wrap up this section here, I, I just want to give you the average duration of a movie um, from two, from like the like the top two from like the big five and then like uh, some some of the shorter movies from the Poverty Row studios. So MGM at this point in time, their average movie length was eighty eight minutes, okay, which is hard to believe. Um, Paramount <laughs> comes in actually quite a bit underneath that seventy six minutes, Jeez. average average length of the movie. Um, when you get to the Poverty Row, <coughs> excuse me, when you get to the Poverty Row studios. Republic, 63 minutes. Mm-hmm. Average movie, like 63 minutes. Wow. Monogram Pictures, 60 minutes. Jeez. That's insane. My God. Yeah. Like, th- that is really fucking insane. Like, Republic Pictures, like, I know, that is, like, the default straight-to-video, like, production company and stuff. Like, when I've, I've seen that logo so many goddamn times. And, oh, like, I, don't, I don't know if it's, I'm guessing it's not the same Republic, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Like the fact that, um, one hour, 63 minutes is like your average running time that that, it is almost like you are speaking like a foreign language to me right now. Like there are TV shows that go, yeah, exactly. And like, they're going in there and like, that is the freaking movie. Like it makes me wonder, like if I was to travel back in time, like what I would personally feel like sitting in the theater and watching that after being conditioned to longer movies for over the last like 10, 15 years. It, that is a good question. I, I, I think about that too, but then I, but then I, I, I kind of, I kind of seek out unintentionally seek out movies that end up being shorter. And I like, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy not like feeling like I have to strap in for the duration, even if I'm at home. Like, I, I kind of enjoy, like, all right, so it's 80 minutes, which means I probably only have to, you know, might not even have to get up to pee, probably have to, like, get a new drink once, and that's it. <laughs> right. Like, when, when, when I watched, um, you know, uh, the Snyder Cut of the Justice League, I was, like, in my head, like, planning out, I'm like, all right, what am I, what am I going to eat? When am I going to go to the bathroom? You mm-hmm. know, I, I'm going to idly check my phone at some point. I have to. This movie's so fucking long. Like, I have to, like, plan how I'm going to watch it. When a movie's like yeah. 84 minutes, pff, I'll just sit down and watch it. It won't take long. No yeah. big deal. Oh, yeah. That's dinner time. You'll be, By the time you're done getting dinner and just like relaxing after work and stuff, like that is the duration of that movie. And stuff. Yep. That's 80 minutes right there. Yep. And that's 80 minutes. You watch the movie and then it's on to something else. And like, dude, like think about it this way, too. Like if you were to go see that movie in the theater, you would be – even if you had 20 minutes of trailers – you're still coming in like right around underneath two hours as far as being in the theater total time. I know that's, that's crazy. It's crazy. It just, I'm not saying that every movie needs to be short, but like there are movies that are clearly just, they just drag for so long. I don't need, 
I do not need three-hour action movies. I just don't. There's yeah. no reason for them to be that long at all. Right. Yeah, we don't need – we basically don't need to drift into the plus two hours for action, horror, none of that stuff. No. no. Not at all. 